the Gerontological Society of America, Meaningful Lives as We Age. Welcome to the GSA Momentum Discussion podcast episode titled, The Financial Aspects of Caregiving. My name is James Appleby. I'm CEO of the Gerontological Society of America, or GSA, and I'm pleased to serve as the host for today's podcast, which is being taped here in Tampa, Florida, during the 2023 GSA Annual Scientific Meeting. I am so pleased to have as our guest today, Surya Kalori. Surya is head of the TIAA Institute. Welcome, Surya. We're delighted to have you here. Thank you, James. Surya, you'll be moderating a GSA Momentum discussion tomorrow here in Tampa. Momentum discussions are sessions designed to help illustrate and focus attention on topics that are particularly relevant, particularly hot, gaining a lot of momentum in the field of gerontology. And the session you'll be working on is going to be exploring the financial aspects of caregiving. The Momentum discussion is based on a new report that TIAA Institute worked on with Mary Naylor at the New Cortland Center at the University of Pennsylvania. So we're thrilled to have you here. Thank you for making some time with us so we could talk about the new report. So you recently released this new paper on financial caregiving. What what motivated this project and what's it all about? Uh, Indeed, James. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. The Institute partnered with, as you mentioned, the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing, uh, Mary Naylor, who's the director of the New Cortland Center, and we explored the financial impact of caregiving on caregivers' budgets, careers, retirement plans, and also general well-being. I'll make a couple of points. People know that when a loved one ages, they need help getting to the doctor, filling prescriptions, providing other healthcare needs. But one in five adults, we found, also provide uncompensated care to loved ones, those with health problems. So what we find is that too many people are taking on the role of financial caregiving without adequate information or support. So what we wanted to do in this report was to explore this and provide information that people can use to plan and prepare for this likely role in the future, in a way that doesn't force financial sacrifices within that person's financial and retirement plans. And how, Syria, do you define financial caregiver in your report? What's the, the way that listeners can better understand exactly what that is about? I'll give you a definition, and I'll also put a number on it. So when we think about financial caregiving, we think about two sets of activities. One might be considered financial coordination. So what we mean by that is you're paying bills, you're filing insurance claims, you're paying taxes. So you're coordinating the finances. The other one would be financial contribution. And and I mean it when I say that. In other words, if I am the informal caregiver for my uh, adults in my family, elders in my family, I'm paying out of my pocket to do that. And we find that nearly 90% of people tend to be, who are caregivers, are also financial coordinators. And nearly 70% are both financial coordinators and financial contributors. And I'll put a number on this to make this meaningful. On average, we find that if one is a financial caregiver and a financial contributor at that, it might be up to $7,200 a year out of one's pocket. Wow, that is a, a pretty extraordinary finding. And I mean, so many individuals are providing care for loved ones. And, but I don't know when they go into this that they are sort of thinking in those, along those lines when they step into it. 
you know, there's so much happening in the area of, of caregiving now, and uh, certainly the, the federal government's uh, focused on better understanding how they can support family caregivers, et cetera. What is new in this report that you think listeners should be aware of? Yeah, so this report provides a comprehensive compilation of insights and research that underscores how caregivers face a series of both financial and professional challenges. So we decided to do this report now because the need for the caregivers will likely skyrocket. Why is that? Each day in the U.S., about 10,000 baby boomers turn 65. And we know, given that we are at the Gerontological Society Conference, that we are living ever longer. And so since Social Security debuted in 1935, life expectancy has gone up 17 years from 62 to 79. So we've been all accorded a longevity bonus. So that's 17 years in just 90 years, and that's an incredible feat. And so as we live these longer lives, one of the things that crops up is the need for caregiving. And so we dimensioned out all the things that need to be done so that people don't have a hair-on-fire moment when the caregiving incident happens, not only in terms of emotional needs, medical needs, but also financial needs. Indeed. And from what you understand, do individuals, so the members of the public, ever reflect on the fact that one day they may be caregivers? Uh, it seems that oftentimes uh, it comes upon people and it's like, uh, okay, I've, I'm going to take this on. But I, I don't know that individuals consider that that's part of the likely future. And I don't know whether financial advisors have those sorts of conversations with people or not. Yeah, indeed, we find this uh, as a peculiar thing that happens throughout one's life. So imagine uh, one's life in life stages. You're a young adult, then you become a parent, you might become a caregiver. Uh, you might have tough life circumstances like widowhood and divorce, thinking about retirement. And in addition to thinking about it as a life journey, we'd like to think about it as a financial life journey. And that layer people rarely put on the life journey considerations. And more often than not, when an immediate need is in front of them in a particular life stage, including caregiving, they spend money on that. And what is it at the expense of? It's at the expense of their own retirement savings. Mm -hmm. And so you're trading off at every step of the way and you get to retirement and you've not set aside the money to take care of yourself. And the caregiving number I gave you is a specific example of that trade-off. Yeah. And you know, we are here at the GSA Annual Scientific Meeting, and, you know, as an organization, GSA is committed to serving as a, a voice for advancing the study of all facets of aging. And certainly central to GSA's ideals is creating an equitable, diverse, and inclusive society that promotes meaningful lives as we age. And those words are carefully chosen. Are some ages, races, genders, or ethnicities impacted by caregiving more than others? Uh, thank you for raising this question. I'm, I'm equally passionate about this theme. In fact, at TIA, we, our campaign is to retire inequality. And so we do a lot of research along these lines. And what we find, particularly with regard to caregiving, is that the financial burdens of caregiving are often steeper for both women and for millennials, surprisingly. Hmm. Women already we have, we find in our research, 30% less income than men during retirement and a disproportionate number of caregivers, 60%, are women in the, in the current generation. Uh, and about 25% of the caregivers are in their 20s or their 30s. And that's especially difficult, as you can imagine, 
James, because many people that age are also raising children, making them part of the so-called sandwich generation. And they're facing even more, because of this, emotional financial burdens. And becoming a caregiver at a young age is especially difficult because it's a time when people might have lower salaries because they're starting up in their careers and they should be taking their biggest strides in terms of saving their money for retirement. So, indeed, the caregiving burden falls unequally on the population. Indeed. And the, uh, you know, at GSA, we, uh, unlike some organizations, we study aging with a life course perspective. So it's fascinating to learn that multiple different generations are very much actively engaged in, the, in caregiving and, and are financial caregivers as well. Exactly. So what, what can be done, what in your report is illustrated about, what can be done to help support financial caregivers? Yeah, let me talk about this both from a financial advisor perspective, a topic you raised in your question, and also employers. So let's talk about both. So financial advisors should form relationships with, for example, social workers, human resource managers, and other professionals to make connections for the family that could be very helpful. And they can take uh, professional development courses. Uh, I remember earlier in my career, I developed a, in partnership with uh, USC in Los Angeles, a gerontology certificate for financial advisors. And we found that as a very useful exercise. So financial advisors, in addition to managing money, should start getting into these kinds of conversations with their clients. And it really changes the tenor of the conversation between advisor and client when they bring up topics like caregiving. Now, employers should also help employees navigate these challenging caregiving situations. They can offer, for example, benefits. Uh, They could offer flex time. They could offer paid family leave, uh, maybe geriatric care management services, or maybe even emergency backup care. And what I also find is even if employers offer these services, many times employees may not know these benefits exist. It's, It's a conundrum. Many of these benefits are not properly utilized. So to me, the answer there for employers is to get to the frontline managers and rather than only relying on the HR and benefits function so that when an employee has a need, the frontline manager can say, ah, here's a benefit that would come in handy for you as you're navigating this caregiving challenge. Well, it's wonderful to hear uh, your focus about what employers can do. And I think for some time there's been an appreciation that employers want to support parents with young children, recognizing that children may need to you know, have uh, pediatric visits and you know, school activities, uh, etc. cetera. Um, are you seeing that there is a growing interest in making sure that employers are also supporting individuals who are caring for perhaps aging parents? I think the culture is slowly but surely changing. One of the things we have seen before, through, and after the pandemic is that the employer care and focus on employee wellness, holistic wellness, financial wellness, physical wellness, and mental health has gone up. So they are eagerly looking forward to what are the suite of services they can provide to drive this wellness. Uh, So the question then becomes, what are the best practices? Indeed, in the momentum discussion that we're going to have tomorrow, the second topic we're going to introduce is this. What are the best practices of employee benefits that employers can provide? Wonderful. Wonderful. I look forward to the the momentum discussion tomorrow. And and so we've talked about sort of what employers can do to help. Are there things that financial caregivers should be aware of that that, that they need to be doing proactively to, to try to 
help ensure while they're providing this care for a loved one, they're also taking steps to, to keep themselves healthy? Yeah, let's, uh, let's uh, close the loop. Employers, financial advisors, and families themselves. Uh, James, I'll start off with an anecdote. The anecdote is, you know, prior Thanksgiving, my brother, my father, and I were together. And my father doesn't need care now. He's 88. But he himself brought up the question of, should I need care? What should we do? And so the three of us availed of a caregiving consultation service that was an employee benefit. Had a practicing nurse visit my father's house, inspect the, his living quarters, inspect his medication, and give us a caregiving plan should we have a need. And that had all kinds of options, all kinds of pricing. And so it is in his lockbox now, but the three of us now have what? Peace of mind. Because should the caregiving incident happen, it's not hair on fire. So that would be the first idea. Could we have a consultation plan in place that the family members can know where to go to if there is a need? The second one, it's interesting you had asked me before, is roles and responsibilities. Caregiving is a gigantic task. Uh, there are medical caregiving responsibilities. There are companionship responsibilities. There are physical activity of daily living responsibilities and financial responsibilities. It's inconceivable <laughs> that one family member can do all these. So can you divide up based on comfort level, proximity, uh, subject matter expertise, these different roles? So the siblings or family members can help each other. So that would be a second thing. The third thing is having paperwork in advance. And I'll share a little research tidbit here, which is uh, actually pretty telling. And that is, when elders in the family are asked, what is the most important thing you want to leave behind? Elders say, we want to leave behind our values, our legacy, our stories. Money is there, but above money are values and legacy and stories. When we ask the, same, the children of the same elders, what do you think about what your parents are leaving behind? Their number one is, do not leave a financial mess, right? So there is a necessary and sufficient condition for the values to transmit. And what is that? paperwork in place. So those would be the three suggestions I would have. And, and uh, it makes me think too, talking about working to plan for the care of your father, that oftentimes in the, in the scientific literature, they'll refer to the idea of caregiver burden. And yet it's clear from interviews with caregivers that while it is a challenge, that sometimes we hear from caregivers, but it wasn't necessarily a burden. It's just sort of a different, uh, a step too far that individuals, as exhausting as it was, and even though they may have affected them financially, they felt it was an honor to care for, for their loved one. And I just wonder if, if anything like that is something you've seen or in talking with, uh, with, with caregivers. Uh, yeah, we, we arrived at a similar word when we did our <laughs> research. Rather than uh, arrive at the word honor, we arrived at the word blessing. Mm. So it was challenging even to the health of the caregiver, but they, at the end of it all, they do it again because it was a blessing. Wonderful. Well, sorry, we're coming to the end of our, our time here. Are there any, any final thoughts, uh, things you want to make sure listeners are aware of? Yeah. Um, thank you, James. Uh, what I wanted to underscore was that we all have financial caregiving responsibilities, of course. So whether as caregivers ourselves or in our roles as managers in our roles as advisors, as friends, neighbors. Whatever role we are playing, we can use this knowledge to make and support more informed decisions. So we can be a leader in our community. So going into 2024 and beyond, uh, the TI Institute will continue to explore caregiving across 
different demographic lenses. So what our hope is, is, is that together we can work towards a financial future in which you're, we're not only living longer, but also living healthily and with longevity fitness. And, and sir, it, it occurs to me that uh, some of our listeners may not be familiar with the TIAA Institute. Could you, uh, in, uh, in a few sentences, sort of describe uh, what the Institute is about? Sure. Uh, so TIAA Institute is a research think tank within the context of TIAA. And TIA provides retirement services and asset management services to um, the higher education, healthcare, and the nonprofit sector. And so the TIA Institute is constituted to do research in these areas along, uh, along the topics of retirement and retirement security, trends in higher education and, and healthcare in the nonprofit sector, and also the, this topic of longevity and longevity fitness. Well, your, your orientation there at the Institute on Research and on Thought Leadership aligns very nicely with, with GSA and what, uh, what our members are about in advancing new insights on important topics affecting us all as we age. Uh, James, uh, we are very proud to be members of the GSA. The access to the membership that you have and its wide uh, diversity of, uh, of the membership is very attractive to us. So thank you for having us on board. Oh, it's our pleasure. We've had a wonderful review of the report that's uh, going to be shared tomorrow during a momentum discussion and helping people understand the financial aspects of caregiving. Several aha moments in terms of some of the data points that you've assembled here. I think the uh, listeners of the podcast, as well as those attending the momentum discussion, will, will like that. And you've also provided a number of very useful tips of things that uh, individuals can do, but also importantly, what employers can do. And in today's competitive workplace, I hope that employers are indeed paying attention and will make some of these changes to make themselves more of a preferred employer of, of individuals who are caring for, for loved ones who are aging. Uh, thank you, James. And we are very much looking forward to the momentum discussion tomorrow. Thank you, Surya. Thank you for being here and thank you for the support of the TIAA Institute. Thank you. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org, G-E-R-O-N.org.